A couple from Medway and their one-year-old son, who have been trapped in Gaza for nearly a month, have crossed the border to Egypt. They're very happy. Uh, they're exhausted. They're drained. They're emotionally and physically drained. They're among the foreign nationals who've been given safe passage from Gaza. It's Thursday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Their story coming up. A U.N. agency says it's running out of supplies in Gaza, where it's sheltering more than 600,000 displaced Palestinians. The long-awaited song that John Lennon recorded in his home at Set Aside is now a full-fledged Beatles song, thanks to artificial intelligence, and it's out today. We'll have the story behind Now and Then. Also, the complicated legacy of college basketball legend Bob Knight, who has died at the age of 83. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Israeli ground troops are advancing on Gaza City as aerial bombardments go on nearly a month into the war that's seen thousands killed. President Biden says 74 Americans escaped Gaza today at the Rafah crossing to Egypt. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports hundreds were approved to get out. Crossing the border is a time-consuming process, and it's not clear everyone on the list today will get through. But for many U.S. passport holders, it was a day that was a long time coming. Yumna Shafi was on the Gaza side of the crossing with her mom, Sanaa. Some of my friends are in there, in Gaza, and uh, my family's there, so I'm kind of scared inside, but I'm also happy to leave because I'm going to be able to be safe. It's been so difficult living in Gaza in the last 25 days. Um, I think this is our only chance to get to a better place and a safer place just for the sake of the kids. Alyssa Adborny, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Justice Department has announced grants to help law enforcement fight violent crime. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says the largest chunk of the more than $330 million in grant funds will allow local law enforcement agencies to hire some 1,700 new police officers in communities across the United States. This comes as police departments across the country struggle with staff levels. The remaining funds will go into school violence prevention programs in some 200 school districts to help improve security at schools, as well as towards violence prevention and community policing strategies. Monaco says that new crime statistics released by the FBI recently show that murder and manslaughter decreased in 2022 compared to 2021, which she says shows the administration's strategy is producing results. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The Senate has gotten around Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville voting 95 to 1 to confirm the nominations of two military leaders. Admiral Lisa Franchetti was confirmed to lead the Navy as the first woman in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and General David Alvin was confirmed as Air Force Chief of Staff. Tuberville has drawn bipartisan criticism for holding up hundreds of military confirmations in protests, he says, of Pentagon abortion policy. The Labor Department says productivity rose more than expected this summer. NPR Scott Horsley reports. Workers' productivity jumped by 4.7 percent in the third quarter. That's the biggest increase in three years. Higher productivity allows employers to pay higher wages without fueling inflation. New claims for unemployment benefits inched up last week but are still low by historical standards. We'll get a report on October's unemployment rate tomorrow. The rate's been below 4 percent for more than a year and a half, the longest streak since the 1960s. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey is reaffirming that Massachusetts is all in on offshore wind. Her statement came this morning at a clean energy conference in Somerville in the wake of yet another setback for the nascent industry in the Northeast. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. The offshore wind industry is facing a lot of economic challenges. Supply chain bottlenecks, rising interest rates, inflation. In the last year, several wind developers, including two in Massachusetts, have severed their electricity contracts. And earlier this week, the world's leading offshore wind developer, Orsted, announced it was outright canceling two large projects in New Jersey. Reacting to the news, Governor Healy said the U.S. can't afford to let the industry fail. We need some help in the interim to to weather these challenging times. Echoing the call for many in the industry, Healy said the Biden administration needs to extend certain clean energy tax credits so projects are more financially viable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A Lowell man suspected of killing a woman whose body was discovered at Logan Airport is believed to have fled to Kenya. State police say the victim's body was found last night inside a vehicle in a parking garage at Logan. Margaret Mbitu's family in Whitman reported her missing earlier this week. Authorities have issued an arrest warrant for Kevin Kengete. Police say the victim and the suspect knew each other. Boston police will maintain a presence in the area known as Mass and Cass now that the tent encampment there has been removed. The city removed tents and tarps on the streets and sidewalks yesterday. Police Commissioner Michael Cox said today that officers will work to keep the area clear of criminal activity and future encampments. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says her administration has adopted new strategies to provide support services for those with substance abuse disorder, mental health issues, who have been living in the area. 46 degrees now, pretty nice out there today. Clear skies tonight, chilly again down in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny again, breezy, a little bit milder, could make it to the mid-50s. 46 in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In a few minutes, more on the latest and supposedly last Beatles song. It's called Now and Then. We'll give it a listen and find out more about the technology used to produce it. But first, an update on the situation in Gaza. The largest aid organization there is running out of supplies and fuel. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, also known as UNRWA, is housing some 690,000 displaced Palestinians in its shelters across the Gaza Strip. That is about four times the number they're intended to hold. The agency says its operations are crumbling due to lack of fuel, supplies, and unreliable communications. Tamara Al-Rafai is a spokesperson for UNRWA, and she joins us now from Amman, Jordan. Welcome. Thank you, Juana. So can you just start, if you can, by giving us an overview of the current humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza? What are you and your colleagues dealing with exactly? I call my colleagues in Gaza every day, every morning, first to check in on them and reassure myself that they're alive, and second, to get details about their living conditions and the living conditions of others. You said it, almost 700,000 people are now living in around 150 schools, 
These are regular schools. I want us to visualize a school that is supposed to receive 2,000 people and think of 8,000 people overcrowded in a school with very low access to clean water or to food or to medicine. Very, very few toilets for these huge uh, numbers and very, very little access to food. When you speak to them, what are the things that are of greatest need to your colleagues, to the people that they're trying to help? The most important thing for all my colleagues and what they hear from others is for the fighting to stop. My colleagues report that everyone around them is distressed, extremely, extremely tired. The children are traumatized. What they really need is clean drinking water, which is becoming very scarce, and food. And in order for us to be able to produce clean water, we need fuel for the water plants. And we are running out of fuel. Many of us, of course, have been following news of the aid that's been coming in with the trucks that are entering through the Rafa crossing. Are, is that aid getting to the people who need it most? We want to qualify and quantify. We've been getting, on average, 20 trucks per day. Before October 7th, Gaza, which was already under blockade, was receiving around 500 trucks per day of commercial goods and humanitarian assistance. Prior to this conflict, unemployment and poverty rates were very, very high. And around 70% of Gazans relied on food aid. So you can imagine their situation now, now as displaced people and with this conflict with without any employment, any jobs and any income or access to goods. So 20 trucks per day is really, really very, very little in the face of the acute needs. You mentioned earlier that you start each day calling your colleagues there in Gaza to assure that they're still alive to check in on them. And we mentioned that communications are unreliable. How is that impacting the agency's ability to operate? It really affects our ability to plan the distribution of food or to plan anything, really, if we cannot communicate, to start with, to get information about the security situation and whether it is safe for our trucks and my colleagues to go around. But I want to really highlight the impact on people's mental well-being mm. to be completely cut off from the rest of the world and from their own families inside Gaza because we no longer have telecoms, but also we no longer have electricity to charge phones. It is really traumatic for people in Gaza to wake up to, to a total blackout. At the time of this interview, we know that 70 of your co colleagues were killed in Gaza since October 7th. And first of all, I am incredibly sorry. Um, can you tell us how has that loss affected UNRWA's work? And how are you and the folks you're working with, how are you holding up? Oh, Anna, for today, it's uh, 72. So every single day, we get news about more UNRWA colleagues killed. Most of my colleagues in Gaza are from Gaza themselves. Mm -hmm. So UNRWA is the largest UN agency on the Gaza Strip, and it employs 13,000 people. They are teachers, engineers, doctors, uh, social workers. They're really part of the Gaza society. So when we hear about 20, 40, 60 people killed in one 
apartment block, chances are that one of my colleagues lives there. So it is very, very dramatic for all of us at UNRWA to wake up every day and wonder whether the numbers are climbing, and every day they climb, these numbers. Tamara Al-Rifai is a spokesperson for UNRWA. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a track 45 years in the making. Today, the Beatles released what they're calling their final song. It's called Now and Then, and it features performances from all four Beatles. Here to talk about the song and how it happened is Stephen Thompson from NPR Music and Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Ari. Okay, John Lennon died in 1980. George Harrison died in 2001. How does this song exist? Well, John Lennon recorded a demo of this song at home in the late 70s. It's just him at a piano. There's actually a TV on faintly in the background. And in the 90s, the surviving Beatles tried to clean up the song and finish it the way they did with a couple of other songs during a reissue campaign. George Harrison even recorded a guitar part for the song in 1995, but they ultimately couldn't salvage the track. Since then, the technology was developed to kind of separate and clean up the raw vocal using software that uses artificial intelligence. And just last year, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr recorded their own contributions to the song to kind of flesh it out, get all four people involved, and make it sound like a true Beatles song. Okay, sometimes people talk about AI technology being used to imitate the voice of someone, and that's Mm -hmm. not actually what's happening here. How was AI used in the production of the song? I would think of it almost as like a high-tech remix. Um, When they announced the song, there was a lot of that focus, and I think a lot of people thought like they got some kind of like simulated robot John Lennon to write and sing a song, and that's not the case at all. This is an existing demo. This is his vocal. Um, It's really just using technology for restoration, exactly the same way that Peter Jackson took all that footage for and used it for the epic 2021 documentary, The Beatles Get Back, where they had all this stuff and they were suddenly able to isolate voices in ways that they didn't used to be able to. I think the important thing to remember with this song is that all the raw materials are the actual Beatles, even though they recorded their contributions across the span of 45 years. Across the universe, one might say. Exactly, one might say. Um, As much as I enjoy hearing you talk about the song, I would really like to hear the song. So let's listen to a little bit more of it. curious, the Beatles evolved so much from the beginning to the end of their music making. I can't quite hear where this fits in, like which era of the Beatles this track is. Well, I think in some ways it fits in at the end. It It is kind of a coda. It's this cocktail of wistfulness and nostalgia and gratitude that is coming in part from men in their early 80s looking back at their friends who they miss. And I think in that way there is a profound quality to it. But look, there there is no way this song was ever going to be Let It Be or Strawberry Fields Forever or whatever Beatles song you love best. This song started as a modest demo and it got blown out into a full production and 
you can still feel the roots of that. I don't think Lennon's vocal is as strong as I'm sure he would have liked. He was very meticulous about how his voice sounded. And I think the lyrics, you know, are, are they're bittersweet, they're nostalgic, but I don't think they're, they're particularly insightful. Where the song hits is just in its mere existence. You're hearing these artists in the same place in a form that we've never heard before. And I think it's easy to hear this song as a meaningful piece of closure for Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, who are in that position to kind of look back and miss their friends and tie a bow on this hugely important part of their lives. To me, this also seems different from other examples of musicians who've passed away and Mm -hmm. reissues being produced by their estate, which might Mm -hmm. not have firsthand knowledge of what those musicians would have wanted. Because in this case, two of the four Beatles actually are alive and can weigh in and were actively involved in the production of the track. Well, and it's worth noting that the estates of John Lennon and George Harrison are Yoko Ono, who was, Mm. you know, very intertwined with the, the history of the Beatles, and Olivia Harrison and Danny Harrison, who are George Harrison's family. And they have given this track their blessing. Um, they have been in, as involved in this as they can. Yoko Ono provided the demo that, that is the root of this song. And so it is still being carried out from within the Beatles' extended family. Stephen Thompson is one of the hosts of Pop Culture Happy Hour, and he'll have more thoughts on Now and Then in the NPR Music Newsletter this weekend. To subscribe, visit npr.org slash music newsletter. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we look at what the generation gap among Arizona's voters means for the hot-button issue of border security. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer, Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Wall Street was way up today. The Dow rose nearly one and three quarters percent. Same thing for the Nasdaq. The S&P picked up nearly two percent. The state attorney general's office has reached a $1.1 million settlement over child labor violations with three owners of Duncan franchises. The AG's office says the matter involves thousands of violations that affected hundreds of underage workers at 26 locations. Infractions included employing minors who did not have work permits and allowing underage workers to work past eight at night without adult supervision. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. The Bruins host the Toronto Maple Leafs at the Garden tonight, 7.30 start time. Celtics are off until Saturday. Clear skies overnight tonight. It should be chilly once again, about the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, another sunny day, some fair weather clouds around. Breezy could make it to the mid-50s and then maybe the low 60s over the weekend. This is WBUR. It's 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential. Starring Eugenio Derbez in theaters Friday. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Coach Bobby Knight, Hoosierland's general, died yesterday at the age of 83. Even to casual basketball fans, he was known as a force to be reckoned with. Somebody says to me, how do you get your teams to play as hard as they do? What's your secret? Well, there is absolutely no secret. You're either going to play hard or you're not going to play. What was also no secret was his erratic and sometimes violent behavior, from yelling to throwing things to allegations of sexual misconduct. Still, college basketball can't forget the Hall of Famer's results on the court. Greg Doyle is a sports columnist at Indy Star who's written extensively about Coach Knight. And when we spoke earlier today, I asked him what the mood was in Bloomington, Indiana, and in the college basketball world in light of Knight's passing. Well, those are two different things. Uh, in college basketball world, people are sorry that one of the all-time greats is gone, but they understand that man was that a was that a roller coaster ride. He took everybody on, and and really his legacy is quite complicated, and you got to get into that. That's everywhere, but this state. In this state, it is, you know, he's the legend, the general, and don't you dare even mention anything negative about this. Not in the 24 hours after we found out about his death which I disagree with, you know, my, my job and your job, our job is to address every elephant in the room. And there's a lot of them there. Okay, let's let's dig into this a little bit more here. I want to talk a little bit about Bob Knight's coaching style. Your piece from yesterday really gets into it. Can you remind us of the story about the red chair and what it tells us about Bob Knight? IU was playing Purdue. Whoever they were playing almost doesn't matter anymore because what happened was a referee made a call Knight didn't like. He was so frustrated, didn't know what else to do until he had. He saw a chair, it was empty, it was probably his chair, flung it across the court. And what that shows is two things. It shows that his temper was, was outrageous, and two, he really couldn't control it, or, and we'll never know because we can't read his mind, or maybe he could control it and did these things as theater. I mean, he's known outside of your state, as you point out, for that temper, his hard exterior. But we should also note that he had a number of meaningful relationships with past players and a coaching influence that resonates today still in college basketball. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's so much good there. There really is. And it's not just the basketball, although, yes, he was brilliant. He did reshape the game. He didn't invent what's called the motion offense. He did not invent that, but he perfected it and brought that everywhere. Even teams like Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson they have run motion principles that they no doubt got because Bob Knight mastered them 40 years ago. So Knight's influence is enormous. Beyond that, off the court, he donated money to, to libraries and he got, he got books for kids and he did not cheat, did not cheat in a, in a sport in an era where everybody cheats. He didn't do it. So there's, there's so much, and he wanted his players to graduate. Very impressive man in so many ways. His accolades are well-documented. But as some of your columns suggest, Coach Knight also had a good side that he didn't want broadcasted. What is at the heart of that? 
there are some people that just don't want to be praised for the for the sake of of being praised. You know, they don't they don't do it for the headlines. And that's who he was. I hear all the time from his former managers, from people that didn't play for him at all, just that bumped into him somewhere, that he did some small act of kindness, the beautiful kind, the acts of kindness that are huge. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. But it's the little things you do on a daily basis that make you special. Bob Knight had that character to him, but then he had, you, just, you can't even finish that sentence without saying, but then, because you, you just can't, if you stop there, that's almost like saying everything about him is okay because of this. No, no, no. There's a but then that follows every sentence you want to say about him. Bob Knight certainly complicated his own legacy, but today, the day after his death, how do you see it? How do you think that by and large, he will be remembered? Well, he's got a 40-year track record of who he was, and I think that's going to follow him everywhere in the best of ways and in the worst of ways. I think 20 years from now, people talk about Bob Knight. They're going to talk about arguably the greatest coach of his generation, maybe even all time, but holy cow, did he have issues. I think that's going to always be his legacy everywhere. It's got to be. Greg Doyle is the sports columnist at Indy Star. Thanks for being here. Hey, Wanda, thank you. A skin disease spread by sand flies was long considered a tropical disease, only acquired by Americans traveling abroad. Well, recent findings from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the disease is actually spreading in the southern U.S. and has been for quite some time. NPR's Ping Huang has more. Back in 2014, Dr. Bridget McElwee saw a young patient in central Texas. He was a three-year-old boy, and he had a growing rash on his ear. They looked a little bit like almost kind of a benign mole that you would see in a child, except that you wouldn't expect something like that to come up quickly and then multiply. McElwee sent a sample to a lab, and the diagnosis came back as cutaneous leishmaniasis. It's a skin disease caused by parasites spread from person to person through sandfly bites. It often resolves on its own, but can be treated. And I was shocked because in medical school, we're taught that this is a tropical disease, something that you see in immigrants, military, returning from deployment, um, people who went on vacation to South America or Asia or Africa. It's not what she expected to see in a child in central Texas who hadn't gone anywhere. So a few years ago, McElwee and her colleagues wrote a paper for the journal JAMA Dermatology. It said the textbooks are wrong. Parasites that cause leishmaniasis are living and thriving in the U.S. Those findings were recently confirmed and bolstered by new research from the CDC. Vita Kama, a microbiologist with the agency, says the parasite in the U.S. is called leishmania mexicana. The genetic signature between mexicana on people who travel abroad and among people who did not have any international travel, there was a very clear distinction between both. And Kama says that specific parasite that's been spreading the disease in the U.S. has been here for a while. It's not a new event. This has been happening, we don't know how far back, but at least since 2005. 2005, because that's when the CDC started DNA testing their samples. Dr. Peter Melby, an infectious diseases doctor at University of Texas Medical Branch, says it goes back further than that. In the 1990s, Melby saw a patient, a Texas rancher, who'd been misdiagnosed years before with leprosy. The patient wasn't responding to treatment because he, in fact, had leishmaniasis. Melby says the leishmania parasites were trapped to a nest of rats living on the man's ranch. So it's a very unique South Texas ecosystem where 
the sandfly and the rodent live symbiotically there uh, in these nests. For decades, leishmaniasis has been circulating at what seems like low levels in South and Central Texas. But in the past 10 years, Melby says the range has been spreading north. It has begun to emerge in northern Texas and even up into Oklahoma, in New Mexico and Arizona. And the type of sandfly that spreads the parasite is already found as far north as Ohio. Climate models say there are some 12 million people in the U.S. who could be getting exposed to leishmaniasis locally. That number could more than double over the next 60 years. Researchers want doctors and patients to know about the possibility, and they want to see the textbooks changed to reflect the reality that leishmaniasis is here. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up in about 10 minutes, the family from Medway, Mass, that's been trapped in Gaza since early last month, has finally been allowed to leave the region and is making plans to come home. The latest from the family coming up. The news from Israel and Gaza continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand the moment. Keep listening. In the forecast, beautiful afternoon, clear overnight tonight. Should be chilly again down in the mid-30s, a nice dry night. Then for tomorrow, sunshine returns, breezy, a little bit milder, could make it to the mid-50s. And for the weekend, partly sunny skies both days should be dry with temperatures in the low 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great with Rob Capolo, exploring songs by Joni Mitchell and Carol King, November 11th at Jordan Hall, celebrityseries.org. In recent speeches, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has invoked biblical passages when talking about the war with Hamas. Some observers hear dangerous references to a holy war. When you're fighting in the name of God, it is a total war with no way of compromising. What does that tell us about how Netanyahu will take the fight to Hamas on the next morning edition from NPR News? Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.N. Human Rights Office is raising serious concerns about Israeli airstrikes at one of the largest refugee camps in Gaza, saying the disproportionate attacks could amount to war crimes. Many of the victims were Palestinian children. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters today that minimizing civilian casualties remains a top priority. He says President Biden is suggesting a brief pause in the fighting to allow more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. A temporary pause that's localized that would allow us to get aid in and to get our people out is a good thing for the people of Gaza. It's a good thing for the Americans that are being held hostage. And it's not going to stop Israel from defending itself. The health ministry in Gaza says more than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed so far since Hamas militants launched a brutal attack on Israel nearly a month ago, killing 1,400 Israelis. Democrats are raising the alarm over a potential third-party presidential run supported by the group No Labels. NPR's Danielle 
Kurtzleben tells us the group's stated goal is to bring Americans together across partisan lines. Earlier this month, the New York Times reported that No Labels is working to get nationwide ballot access for 2024 and to run a moderate Republican at the top of the ticket. Speaking to reporters, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she believes the group is not truly nonpartisan, but that it and its donors want to advance Republican policies. I think that our democracy is at risk, and I think uh, that um, uh, No Labels is uh, perilous uh, to our democracy. In a statement, No Labels told NPR that Pelosi is trying to tell voters what to think and preventing political competition. Democrats fear that a moderate Republican would draw some Biden voters away and give Trump a victory. That's Danielle Kurtzleben. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Criminal justice reform advocates are cheering the state's new clemency guidelines. Governor Maura Healey this week announced efforts to consider a number of new factors when evaluating petitions for clemency. They include the correction of legal errors, injustices, and addressing racism. Patricia Guerin leads the Prisoners' Rights Clinic at Northeastern Law School. She wants to use the clemency process to try to address a lot of historical injustices. Garen expects the parole board to consider more clemency petitions as a result of the changing guidelines. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston has turned over two ancient bronze sculpture fragments to the district attorney's office in Manhattan. The transfer happened last month. It was part of an investigation into an antiquity smuggling ring. WBR's Solon Kelleher has more. The MFA learned the objects from its ancient Rome collection were likely stolen from an archaeological site more than 60 years ago in what is now present-day Turkey. The museum voluntarily handed off the works in cooperation with investigators' efforts to repatriate the items. Victoria Reed is the MFA's senior curator for provenance. We're accountable to many audiences, and holding on to looted and stolen artifacts is not part of our responsibilities to the public. It is not part of our duties in maintaining the public trust. As part of the investigation, a judge ordered the Worcester Art Museum to turn over a bust that investigators believe was also looted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. A man who authorities call a serial bank robber is going to prison for nine years. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston says 44-year-old David Frades pleaded guilty to robbing a bank in Dartmouth two years ago. He was sentenced yesterday. Frades was on supervised release when he robbed the bank. It was part of his sentence for a bank heist in 2015. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waltham Open Studios. Learn about art making and visit more than 70 artist studios in three buildings on Moody Street in the heart of Waltham this Saturday and Sunday. Pull up the blankets again tonight. Temperatures should fall to the mid-30s. Another nice day in store tomorrow. A good share of sun, light winds, making it to the mid-50s for a high. 46 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics. The Persian Version is a new comedy by Miriam Keshavars on the differences of two cultures when a woman's secret is revealed to her eccentric immigrant family. Starts Friday only in theaters. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The White House is asking Congress for more than $13 billion to deal with border issues. This comes as a group of Democratic mayors is urging President Biden to help them deal with a dramatic increase of migrants who've ended up in their cities. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid recently traveled to Arizona, where the proximity to the border means immigration is at the top of many voters' minds. Hey, Asma. Hi, Ari. Arizona's also a critical battleground state that Democrats and Republicans both want to win in 2024. So how does immigration figure into voters' thinking there? Well, Ari, I wanted to come here because of what's known as the cultural generation gap. I learned about this term from a demographer at the Brookings Institution. This is the gap between younger people who are more likely to be brown, more likely to vote for the Democratic Party, and older voters over the age of 65 who are more likely to be white and vote for Republican candidates. Here's the Brookings expert, Bill Fry. We've seen Arizona in the last several elections move toward Democratic victories for Joe Biden and for the recent elections of the governor and the senator, a state that had been generally red. And that says a lot about the changing demography of the younger part of the population of Arizona making a big impact on what's going on. This is happening all over the country, but it's magnified in Arizona more so than anywhere else, where he says 78 percent of seniors are white but only 37% of children in the state are white. It's a stark divide, and I wanted to hear voters' unvarnished thoughts about immigration. So I went to Maricopa County in Arizona. It's home to Phoenix. It's a rapidly growing county, and that's because it's a mix of immigrants and retirees, retirees like Frank Rizzo. We're affected very much here in Arizona with the illegal population. They're just, you know, pouring across the border and they're inundating the small cities. There's just not enough services to help these people. Rizzo is president of a local Republican club in one of the retirement communities around here. His message was echoed by other older voters who praised the border wall and expressed fears that terrorists could be entering. I met Carl Johnson at a Republican rally with his wife, June. For people to come across with no control, no... Um, background checks, just able to walk across. It's a real insult because when I came over, you had to be perfect practically to get in this country. June, 86, said she moved from England when John F. Kennedy was president. Anybody and everybody's coming in now. And President Trump said it best. He said, the best people don't leave their countries. When they're doing well in their countries, they don't leave. But criminals do. But young Arizonans, like Viri Hernandez, hear rhetoric like this and it sounds absurd. There's a huge divide. I mean, you're talking about Latino children who grew up under the terror of their families being hunted. She remembers being terrified that her mom could be swept up and deported in raids. It was a time when Arizona had some of the nation's most hardline immigration laws. Many voters came of age in this era. Specifically young people who then dedicated our lives to fight back. And now we're running organizations and we've ran some of the most expansive voter registration drives. Many young Latino voters say this last decade of immigration rhetoric and policy has mobilized them. Senia Arona is one of them. You don't survive that without it affecting your psyche, without affecting your politics and your worldview. 
Orona was born in the U.S. but comes from a family of immigrants. Younger voters who tend to be democratic have more personal ties often to immigration. And when Orona talks about the border, her descriptions are wildly different from the Republicans I met. Where they talked about a quote, open border, she says, Our border is over-militarized and it's a fabricated problem. It, it's, it's, a, it's a false system of barriers, but it's creating a backlog of folks and it's fabricating the humanitarian situation. That's reporting from NPR's Asma Khalid, who is still with us. And Asma, it sounds like the people you met are describing polar opposite views of the border. Mm-hmm. Indeed, they are. I spoke with Arizona pollster Paul Bentz, and he told me that independent voters, uh, they make up about a third of the electorate in Arizona, are really key in how people win elections. And for this group, unlike Republicans, immigration is not the number one priority. When we've done polling on immigration reform, for example, we have found that there is a large majority of the electorate that wants to secure the border. But we also see that there is a significant portion that would like to see reform, including a pathway to citizenship. So to bring us back to 2024, how is immigration going to factor into the strategy? You know, I talked to a pollster with the DNC, and he said the lane for Democrats and Biden is to talk about border security as an investment that needs more resources. Uh, This is an approach that aims to keep the base intact while not alienating people in the middle. But I will say Biden is starting from a place where a lot of Americans seem dissatisfied. You've seen that in the polls in terms of how people disapprove of how he has handled immigration. NPR's Asma Khalid, thanks for your reporting. Good to talk to you. Nearly half of U.S. states have passed legislation banning banning gender-affirming care for transgender teens. Courts have struck down those bans in some states and permitted them in others. In the Southeast, federal appeals courts have largely sided with the states. And now Tennessee parents of trans children are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. From member station WPLN in Nashville, Mariana Balcayao reports. The past few months have been a roller coaster for the Williams family. When they sued the state over access to gender affirming care, a federal judge stopped the law from taking effect temporarily. But then Tennessee's attorney general appealed the injunction to a higher court and won. You know, I, it's just frustrating. That's Brian Williams, one of the plaintiffs opposing Tennessee's law. His daughter is transgender and no longer able to access treatment like hormone therapy and puberty blockers in their home state. She's upset. I mean, she doesn't feel comfortable in the state. She feels like people not only don't understand trans folks, but they want to get rid of trans folks. And it it pains me. In lifting the temporary injunction, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals argued the law does not discriminate based on sex, since the care given would only apply to one group, transgender minors. In the ruling, the court cited the Dobbs decision, which ended the federal right to abortion. So they're trying to expand on Dobbs. That's ACLU attorney Lucas Cameron Vaughn. He says Dobbs argues that abortion care, or the lack thereof, is not discriminatory because it only applies to women. The Sixth Circuit now, he says, is trying to apply that argument to transgender health care. But hormone therapy isn't just prescribed to transgender teens. It's given to treat conditions from cancer to acne. That's why he says the argument doesn't hold. In a way that it denies them 
the same health care that non-transgender youth are able to still receive. Cameron Vaughn has petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of families like the Williams who are having a harder time finding treatment. I mean, we're just keep looking. I don't I don't know what happens if if they pass laws in Ohio. We may be, you know, going very far like Colorado, I think, at this point. Now, the future of gender affirming care could be determined on the national level. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Bakayao in Nashville. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Medway family trapped in Gaza since war broke out between Israel and Hamas has been given safe passage to Egypt. The family was among the foreign nationals allowed through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt today. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following their story and has this report. Early this morning, Abu Dokal got word from the Palestinian Customs Authorities that he would be allowed to cross the border with his wife, Wafa Abu Zayda, and their one-year-old son, Yusuf. At mid-afternoon their time, Wafa messaged WBUR that the family made it to Egypt. Boston attorney Sammy Nabolsi says the family then boarded a U.S.-provided bus for the five-hour trip to Cairo. They're very happy. They're exhausted. They're drained. They're emotionally and physically drained. Nabulsi says travel arrangements are still being made for the family's trip home to Medway. They're asking for privacy, he says, and they won't be commenting further until they're in the U.S. Nabulsi's been emailing U.S. officials in the media almost daily for the past three weeks asking for help. Unfortunately, I can't help but believe that the administration did not make this a priority until we made noise about it until we told the story. The story's been gripping. We first spoke with the family on October 12th, five days after the Hamas attacks on Israel and a day before they were scheduled to leave Gaza. They had been on vacation visiting family when we reached Abu Zeda in northern Gaza. I don't know what to say. We think this is safe. We think this is not. But to be honest, nothing in Gaza is safe. Nothing. Think if you're in Gaza, it means you're not safe. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you can hear the sounds. What is that? <sighs> it's it's the bombing. The fighting intensified. When Israel evacuated the north to prepare for a ground invasion, the family fled south. Ocal sent audio messages to WBUR almost every day, describing their efforts to escape Gaza. We've attempted to go to the crossing with Egypt three times to exit based on instructions from the State Department, phone call and email communications. And uh, we've done so only to uh, spend eight to ten hours at the crossing with no actual movement of anyone exiting Gaza and lack of uh, follow-up information from the State Department. He said they were living in a home with 40 other people. We've been trying to stay strong, but it hasn't been uh, easy Airstrikes have intensified the last few days, and especially last night. It's become constant all night and most of the day. 
Supplies were dwindling, Ocal said. There was little fuel. They waited in line for hours for bread and water. They ran out of milk for their son, and the toddler developed an ear infection. Access to power and phone service was spotty. Even though the family is expected back in the U.S. soon, Attorney Nabolsi says he'll continue to try to get Americans out of Gaza. This fight isn't over. There are still many Americans and their family members left behind. And I want this to continue to be a priority for the administration until every single American citizen who wishes to leave is able to leave. Around 400 Americans stuck in Gaza have reportedly contacted the State Department and expressed a desire to leave. In a statement, a National Security Council spokesperson said the White House hopes more Americans can leave in the coming days. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and a joint statement from Senators Markey and Warren said they're relieved that Ocal, Abu Zeda, and their son are coming home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting The Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, closes November 26th. Learn more at PEM.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's single-handed hold on hundreds of promotions in the military has antagonized the military and Democrats, and now it's angering Republicans. The fury on the Senate floor coming up. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, please visit WBUR.org slash open meetings. Again, that's WBUR.org slash open meetings. Sunset is at 536 today, so enjoy the bright skies while they last. Clear tonight, down around the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, the start of a warming trend moving to the mid-50s. The weekend could make it to the low 60s. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. I'm Robin Young. After decades of progress, life expectancy in the U.S. is falling. Lives are being cut short by diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic illness. A lot of the experts that we talked to described our situation when it comes to chronic diseases as like a not-so-quiet pandemic. It, it has been brewing. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Time now for our Science News Roundup from our friends at NPR's Shortwave podcast. Aaron Scott and Regina Barber, welcome back. Hi, Ari. Thank you, Ari. You have, as usual, brought us three science stories that grabbed your attention this week. What have you got for us? How about the weird anatomy of starfish? Cool. And staying up all night can ease depression in mice. Fun. And a record low for Antarctica's sea ice. Bummer. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. You want to start with sea ice? Yeah. Sure. So, Ari, this is, of course, not great news. Our NPR colleague Rebecca Hersher just reported on new science about melting ice across Antarctica. Today, we're going to focus specifically on research about Antarctica's sea ice. 
And when we say sea ice, we mean the seawater around the continent that freezes and floats on the ocean surface, and it happens there each winter. Each Antarctic winter, which would be summer here in North America where we are. Right. Deep winter in Antarctica is in July, August, and September. And in September, the sea ice is at its most expansive for the year. And usually at that point, there's so much sea ice that it doubles the size of the continent. Doubles. Wow. Yeah. Sadly, the amount of sea ice has been shrinking, partly because of warmer ocean water from climate change. So this new analysis found that this year there was substantially less ice than ever before, going back to when satellites started tracking this around 1980. Less than ever before. What does that mm -hmm. mean for Antarctica and the rest of the world? Well, one big thing is that it can contribute to global sea level rise, but not the way you might think. Like disappearing sea ice doesn't actually add extra water to the ocean. It's kind of like an ice cube melting in your glass of water. The level of water in your glass is still about the same. Hmm. But Antarctica's sea ice does lead indirectly to sea level rise because it protects the continent's glaciers and the massive ice shelves from storms and ocean water that can eat away at their ice. So without that protective shield of sea ice, those glaciers and ice shelves on land can melt faster. And that does lead to sea level rise. Exactly. And when we have a bad year like this one, it's difficult for sea ice to recover. The exposed ocean water that doesn't freeze absorbs more heat than ice does, and that makes it more difficult for ice to reform the next year. All right, let's stick with stories about the water. And Regina, you have got something to cheer us up after that bad news about sea ice. I do. A 200-year-old mystery about starfish anatomy. Yeah, Ari, so scientists have wondered what's up with the body structure of starfish. As larvae, they start out with two distinct sides, um, like a lot of animals, actually. And then they transform into adults with five identical limbs. So there's no obvious head or tail. Mm -hmm. And recently there have been these two leading hypotheses they both involve the starfish losing their heads through evolution. Yeah, one idea was they became all tails. Huh, what was the other? The other one argues that starfish were basically all limbs, with no real head or tail, just a mouth and an anus. But there's definitely a metaphor here, but I'm not going to guess what it is. <laughs> right? So yeah, this new paper out this week in the journal Nature settles this debate once and for all. Ari, do you have a guess? Are starfish all tails or all limbs? I have to confess, I saw a headline about this, so <laughs> I have a clue that it's all limbs. Am I right? Funny enough, it's neither of those. Oh! Yeah, so here's Christopher Lowe, an evolutionary biologist who was a co-author of the paper. They're in fact a giant head, and they've lost their trunk rather than having lost their heads. What does that even mean? What about the five starfish arms? What? Yeah, basically all those arms are heads. Yeah, so Christopher and his team used new biomedical technology to look at genes that turn on and off from the starfish larval stage through the metamorphosis to an adult starfish. And what they found was that the genes that are commonly associated with the head area and other creatures, you know, humans, flies, those are the genes that are being expressed in the arms of the starfish. So the arms, genetically speaking, our heads. The term head has just become completely meaningless <laughs> to me in this context. I know, heads right? or arms. Yeah, but I also talked to Monsi Srivastava, an evolutionary developmental biologist that didn't work on the study, but she was delighted by the research because she said, quote, it teaches us to be humble as scientists and should get everyone excited about what other novel things we might learn about the natural world. Who knows? Maybe my arms are actually heads, too. <laughs> they might be. Um, okay, our last topic, how one sleepless night can ease depression for several days, at least in mice. And I'm curious about this because I always heard that people who suffer from clinical depression, it can worsen if you don't get enough sleep. Aaron, what's going on in this study? 
Yes. So, and that is chronic sleep loss, but this is just looking at like a single all-nighter, which I'm going to guess you probably pulled. Once or twice. Once or twice. Do you, what did you feel like the next day? What was your mood? Delirious, dizzy, chaotic. So it's like that kind of like slap happy, scientists refer to it as like a tired and wired state. And they've found that it occurs in both mice and humans after staying up all night for a single night. This jittery, hyperactive, more aggressive, more sexual um, kind of behavior that is like a brief manic state. And scientists found that it can also have a strong antidepressive effect in people that last for several days, like long after the other changes wear off. It can be as drastic as some of the fast-acting drugs scientists are testing for depression, like ketamine or psilocybin. But what researchers haven't figured out is the why. Like, what's happening in the brain of someone who stays up all night that causes these mood changes? especially this antidepressant effect. So did scientists test this at like a mouse rave discotheque or what? Like, <laughs> kind of. All the day glow and black lights that mice could handle. Um, yes. So in the study that came out this week in the journal Neuron, researchers kept mice up all night. I don't think there's any pumping music, but they found that sure enough, the mice were more excitable, more aggressive, more sexual and less depressed. How did they know the mice were less depressed? Of course, we can't check in with mice about the feelings. They don't go to therapists. So what scientists do is they kind of create what they see as a depression-like state in the mice by repeatedly giving them small pinches or shocks to their arm until certain mice stop trying to escape and basically give up hope that the world's going to get better. Yeah, and in this case, staying up all night made the mice rebound and once again try to avoid these unpleasant sensations. Do scientists know what it is about sleeplessness that seems to trigger this change in outlook, at least in mice? Yeah, so researchers found that several places in the mice's brain released a lot more dopamine. And that dopamine literally rewired neurons in the brain to maintain that upbeat mood for several days. It's called neuroplasticity, and it's one of the promising things researchers look for when they're treating depression. So what are the conclusions here for people with depression. Yeah, I mean, the authors do not recommend that people change their sleeping habits and start pulling all-nighters because this is a short-term effect in mice, whereas we do know that chronic sleep loss has all sorts of long-lasting negative effects in humans. But they see this as helping scientists understand how our moods transition both naturally and from drugs like ketamine. And it could give researchers a target in the brain to look at for creating new types of antidepressants. All right, that's a hopeful note to end on. Regina Barber and Aaron Scott from NPR Science Podcast Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Always good having you both here. Thanks. Thank you, Ari. Thanks, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers, Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. 
in select theaters tomorrow, everywhere November 10th. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight down around the mid-30s. Tomorrow, look for some sunshine, some clouds around, temperatures in the mid-50s. Calling all crafters. Join us at City Space Monday, November 13th for an evening dedicated to do-it-yourself and homemade creations. Free tickets are at wbur.org events. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For almost nine months, a Republican congressman from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, has alone blocked military confirmations and promotions. He's doing it to protest a Pentagon abortion policy. The military says the backlog could endanger national security. Now Tuberville's own party is on the attack against him. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, the showdown on the Senate floor coming up. In the Middle East, children in Gaza have never known a life without the threat of violence. Researchers say that can have a profound impact on their development. Their sense of the world is shattered. They don't feel secure in their families. They don't feel secure in their relationships with others. Constantly on guard. More on the children's mental health crisis in Gaza coming up. And Donald Trump's two sons testified today in New York in the civil fraud trial against them. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 74 U.S. citizens and family members were able to leave Gaza today as part of an ongoing effort to evacuate Americans who've been stuck there since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. NPR's Tamara Keith explains the Biden administration is continuing to push for more to be able to leave. The U.S. government is tracking about 1,200 U.S. citizens and their close family members who've been trapped in Gaza. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says the State Department is in touch with them and making plans to get them out. We still fully expect that more Americans will be able to depart Hopefully more today, but certainly we're looking for them to depart uh, at a similar pace, if not, if not better than what, uh, what we've seen. But again, I, I want to stress again, it's a fluid situation. Kirby thanked allies in the region for their help with this tricky diplomatic operation, including Qatar and Egypt. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Meanwhile, there are further escalations on the border between Israel and Lebanon, with militias in Lebanon and the Israeli military both stepping up cross-border attacks. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has that story. The Lebanese militant group Hezbollah says it's attacked an Israeli army post with two suicide drones. It's the first time the group says it's used this kind 
kind of weaponry against Israeli forces in this escalating conflict. And it comes a day before the group's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, is scheduled to make his first public remarks since the October 7 attack on Israel by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. Hamas, meanwhile, says it's fired 12 rockets from Lebanon towards the northern Israeli town of Kiryat Shimona, which has been evacuated. The Israeli military says it holds Hezbollah responsible for the attacks from Lebanon and that it hit back hard against the group with airstrikes and artillery fire aimed at Hezbollah's command and control centres, rocket launch posts and other infrastructure in south Lebanon. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. Former Memphis police officer is pleading guilty to federal civil rights and conspiracy charges in the January beating of death of Tyree Nichols. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports Desmond Mills Jr. is the first of five officers charged to change his plea. Video of the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols shows officers, all also black, punching, kicking, and using pepper spray and police batons on Nichols. As part of the plea deal, Mills admitted to repeatedly and unjustifiably striking Nichols with a baton and failing to intervene or provide medical aid. Prosecutors will recommend a maximum prison sentence of 15 years. Lawyers for Nichols' family say the plea is consistent with their civil lawsuit that alleges the policies of the Memphis Police Department encourage officers to use violence. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow jumped 564 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts could start to enforce its new cap on the number of families in the state's shelter system within days. And parents in the system are reacting harshly to a planned change in the program. WBR's Gabriella Manuel reports the state may limit how long families can stay in the shelters. Regulations filed this week say with 30 days notice, the state can tell families they have to leave shelter units. That has never happened in the system's 40-year history. Thomas Kearney lives in a shelter with his two sons. One of them is going through chemotherapy. He says a limit on their shelter stay would be devastating. I'm a single dad of two boys, and my son has medical issues where it's even almost impossible for me to go to work. And last time I checked, it's 28 degrees outside this morning. Where the hell am I going with my children? The average family stays over a year in the state-funded shelter program. But officials say unprecedented growth is straining space and funds. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are asking Homeland Security and other federal agencies to implement policy changes so migrants in Massachusetts can start to work. The Massachusetts lawmakers say by waiving application fees, the migrants will be able to get the proper work permits faster. The state this week opened a legal clinic to fast-track work authorizations for migrants who are living in family shelters. Red Sox today introduced their new head of baseball operations. Former Sox pitcher Craig Breslow played 13 years in the major leagues and won a World Series with Boston in 2013. Breslow says he knows what it takes to win here. Red Sox fans deserve a standard of quality and consistency. Quality, meaning a team that can win the AL East and contend for a World Series title, and consistency, meaning we can do this year after year after year. Breslow says the team's most pressing needs are pitching and defense. Bruins host the Toronto Maple Leafs tonight at the Garden and in the forecast temperatures down to the mid-30s overnight tonight. Another nice day tomorrow, good share of sunshine, some fair weather clouds, light winds, making it to the mid-50s for a high. 46 now in Boston at 506. 
WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has been blocking virtually all military promotions since February over his objection to an unrelated Pentagon abortion policy. Last night, several of his fellow Republicans, including Senators Joni Ernst of Iowa and Dan Sullivan of Alaska, went to the Senate floor to try to force votes on the promotions of more than 60 military officers. Each time, Tuberville objected. Senator from Alabama. Reserving the right to object. 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 And so, Mr. President, object. Objection is heard. Sullivan began things by saying he wanted the American people to know that in all, 376 promotions are being held up. It is estimated by the end of this year, 89% of all general officer positions in the United States military will be affected by the current holds from Senator Tuberville. Senator Ernst talked about the real impacts this is having on military families. Spouses who've lost jobs because promotions are stuck in limbo, leaving the family with no idea where they will live and serve. And military kids? They are unable to re-enroll in school or enroll in a new school since they do not have a permanent address. Tuberville, for his part, never changed his mind. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales are following this. Hey there. Hey, Ari. Hey, Ari. Claudia, this process last night took four hours, with Republican senators growing angrier as it went on. You can hear the frustration. Is all this pressure making any difference? Well, the Senate has been able to approve a few promotions here and there, but Tuberville is not budging on the vast majority of these. And he says this shouldn't be a surprise since he's been doing this for nine months. And he says he warned his Republican colleagues how last night was going to play out. He says he wanted to see one by one floor votes instead. I told him beforehand, you know, I didn't want to embarrass him right there in front of everybody. I told him, I want a floor vote. That wasn't a floor vote. Okay. So he was pretty defensive on his plans going forward. And he's holding this stance, opposing these nominees as a result of a Pentagon policy that allows service members to get assistance to seek abortion care. Tom, you've been covering this for months, and it seemed to finally take a heart attack from a senior U.S. officer to move this debate along in the Senate. What happened? Well, that's right. The the top Marine officer, General Eric Smith, had a heart attack over the weekend and now is in stable condition. His family is asking for privacy. But a few weeks back, Ari, General Smith said he's working, get this, from 530 in the morning until 1130 at night Mm -hmm. because he was doing two jobs, including that of his deputy, who was only confirmed just today. And General Smith told a group a few weeks back that his work schedule is unsustainable, his word. So you're right. It took a heart attack for the Senate basically to do its job. The Senate just today approved Admiral Lisa Franchetti as the Navy's top officer and also General David Alvin to lead the Air Force. And as I said, the number two Marine officer, Lieutenant General Chris Mahoney, also was confirmed. The Senate leader, Democrat Chuck Schumer, said he was willing to hold votes on just some of the most important nominees. 
Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said he was glad for those votes today, but said there are hundreds more and the military must be at full strength. So when you look across the armed forces, how is this broadly affecting the military? Well, you know, it depends who you talk with. Some say it's quite disruptive. There are those like General Smith who are doing two jobs. The Army doesn't have a confirmed number two officer as well. Some officers want to retire and are being told to stay. Others can't move to a new job because they haven't been confirmed. I'm told there's even one senior officer slated for promotion considering just retiring. Now, others say the greater impact is on the families of senior officers that we just heard. You know, spouses who are planning to move and accept a job offer now have to scrap that plan. Kids can't enroll in a new school and are staying put. So very frustrating for families. So, Claudia, how is this impacting Republicans in the Senate? Well, it's clear they're running out of patience, especially those with military backgrounds who were on the floor last night confronting Tuberville. I asked Joni Ernst. She happens to be an ex-Army officer, a combat veteran. She told me they're going to do this again next week, and she hopes more Republicans join them. And She went on to tell reporters about the risks here. We are really hurting the readiness. You hear people say they're not. It is hurting the readiness of our military. Our adversaries are watching us. We have to get this issue resolved. And we should note this is forcing Senate Republicans to step into abortion politics, which is a political loser for moderates. It explains why this has taken so long. And Tuberville is a relatively new member. He's at the start of his first term. So he's relatively not that well known in terms mm-hmm. of other veterans with experience. All right. And Pierre's Claudia Grisales and Tom Bowman, thank you. You're thank welcome. Thank you. The Israeli military continues its airstrikes and ground campaign in Gaza in response to the attacks by Hamas on October 7th. That assault left more than 1,400 Israelis dead and more than 200 taken hostage. As the conflict continues, the impact on Gaza's children has become shockingly evident. According to Palestinian health officials, of the more than 9,000 Palestinians who have been killed, Nearly half were children. Thousands more have been injured and have lost family members. Kids growing up in Gaza have never known a life without the threat of violence and conflict. That kind of cumulative trauma, researchers say, can have a profound impact on a child's emotional development, unless they're given a chance to recover. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has more. Iman Farajallah grew up in Gaza, but has lived in the United States for nearly 20 years. She's a psychologist working with refugee kids at a community clinic in San Francisco. But most of her family is still in Gaza. My siblings, all of their homes has been bombed. All of them. My siblings, my nephews, my everybody, they have no home. The last time she saw them, she says, was last summer. And it was a stressful visit. As we were there, the Israeli bomb twice. Of course, there you cannot even sleep, sit or rest because you have the drones buzzing over your head 24-7. She says her own kids, born and raised here in the U.S., have come to dread going there. But when she was growing up, there was no escape. The experience was so 